All right. Hey, everyone. This is Cameron. Um, I want to start this morning uh, just with a, a question for you, which is what does it look like when worldliness infiltrates the church? I'm guessing that even in just posing that question, some of you had sort of a, a really unpleasant gut reaction to that wor word worldliness. Um, and, and that's because this word worldliness has been used in some church traditions as a bit of an all-encompassing sort of boogeyman, if you will. Um, maybe associated for you with like a lack of intelligent engagement uh, with what's going on outside the walls of the church. Uh, or maybe some of you <laughs> associate like the avoidance of worldliness with something like youth groups in the 90s, uh, sort of burning CDs at like CD burning bar bonfires, maybe tossing your Peter Gabriel album in uh, to, to maintain purity or something like that. Um, maybe it's just a, as a way to encourage a, a head in the sand approach to life that cloisters Christians away from the people that they're supposed to be loving and serving and, and preaching the gospel to. Um, or maybe for you, it doesn't have any of those negative associations to which I would say congratulations if you've avoided that in all sincerity. That, that's amazing. But overly simplistic uses of the word aside, um, Jesus and the New Testament writers do view this term worldliness or love for the world as a very real and, and very present threat to, to Christians and their churches' ability to properly share the good news of Jesus uh, in word and in deed. And so today's passage, my hope is, will give us um, a solid just framework for understanding um, our relationship to the world, because uh, that's super important. So the text has already been read for us, uh, but but verse 15, we'll, we'll just start there. Uh, it gives us a command and an implication. So 15 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the command, don't love the world. The implication, if you do love the world, you're not loving God at the same moment. So whatever John means by loving the world here, he's confident that you can't do it and love God in the same moment. And it raises the question, like, aren't, aren't we as Christians supposed to love the world? Um, the, the love of God the Father specifically includes love for the world in one of our most famous biblical passages, John 3.16. For God so loved the world uh, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is a bedrock truth of the, of the Christian faith. I hope it is for you. Um, so what is going on here? What, what is the cosmos, the, the Greek that's translated the world? What does he mean when he employs this term here in this passage? It's, it's a broad word in Greek, similar to how it is in English. Um, it can mean several things other than world. It can mean something like adornment. But when it does mean world, it usually takes on one of three meanings according to the New International Dictionary of New Testament theology. Um, first, it can mean the universe or, or like the sum total of all created things. Sometimes it's used in that sense. Second, it can mean the world as the sphere or place of human life, kind of the, the sphere where human life exists. You, you might translate it the earth in that sense. 
Or third, it can mean the world of men um, or humanity, uh, the systems and cultures it, it produces and lives within. And, and even then, it can sometimes take on a positive sense, but often a negative sense. Um, and this negative sense of that, of, of kind of human culture and human systems, is, is what Paul has in mind when he uses the word cosmos in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, when he says, we'll quote it, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, cosmos following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so this passage in Ephesians, it identifies the perpetrators of sin, the perpetuators of sin, I should say, as three distinct but overlapping forces. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, so, so the world, in the sense that John uses here, can be thought of as, as like a collection of human ideas or values or habits or cultures or systems that exist apart from allegiance to God and therefore perpetuate evil. Um, it, it's influenced uh, by sin in individual people. So the, the flesh contributes to the construction of the world in the sense that John is talking about. And it's influenced by evil spiritual beings like the devil and his, his demons and spiritual beings opposed to the rule and reign of God. So coincidentally, as, as Christians right now, a lot of Christians are, are considering trying to understand whether or not sin can take on a systemic or, or an institutional form. Um, as we're asking that question, this New Testament concept of the cosmos or, or the world uh, used in this sense leads us to conclude, yes, yes, that, that is what the world is and what it does. It's, it's, it's systems and structures built up by sinful people that perpetuate sin out into the world, influenced by evil spiritual beings as well. Um, so for Christians, there is a crucial call, we have to get this right, to love the world, no doubt about it. Um, we, are to, we are to love humanity in general in the same way that, that God loves the world in general and the people within it in general and gave his only son on the world's behalf. We are to mimic that kind of love. That's that neighbor love that we talked about last week um, or two weeks ago. Uh, but at the same time, um, there is a crucial call to refuse to love the world, uh, namely the, the culture that humanity produces in opposition to God. Um, so John focuses on the second half of the equation here. He, elsewhere, he's going to focus on the first half, love the world. Says. Now he's focusing on do not love the world in this sense. So that clear? Ho I hope so. So now he's going to give the reasons for the command that he's giving. Um, and and, and the f he's going to give three. Uh, the first is that the, the world and its things are not from God. Uh, so he says, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. So his point is that the things that fill the world, and again, world in the way we've just defined, are not from him. In his patience, he's, he's allowed them to exist and to be there, 
uh, but they originated elsewhere apart from God, not with him. Uh, and so John, and then John's going to give three examples of the kinds of things that are part of the world. The first is probably the overarching category, and then the second and third are, are subcategories that kind of fill that in. So the first, the big category, is the desires of the flesh. And we need to clarify a couple of things here. First is that desires can be positive or negative. Um, John does not mean to denigrate desire in general. Like Christianity, we, we need to be really clear. It's not like something like early Buddhism um, that, that, that understood desire to be what creates suffering um, and, and the path to enlightenment consisting of eliminating desire, getting rid of all desire. Christianity is not that. Um, Christianity teaches that God is the author of desire and that the satisfaction of healthy desires um, is his gift to us and, and, and actually ultimately designed to point us to his perfect goodness. So, so Christianity is not a harsh asceticism. When John says the desires of the flesh, he doesn't mean good desire. Um, so what does he mean? What is desires of the flesh? Well, another point of clarification is that it's, it's tempting to hear that phrase and assume that John is sort of narrowly focused on sexual sin. Um, in fact, several translations translate this phrase, lusts of the flesh, which if, you know, any time spent in American evangelicalism will, will condition you to think, think of this in exclusively sexual terms. Um, but commentator I. Howard Marshall, he argues, I'm going to quote him, it's perhaps more likely that John is here using flesh in its Jewish and broader biblical sense of the nature of man as a whole, as a worldly being separated from and opposed to God. So I want to be very clear. Um, this would include sinful sexual desire or sinful sexual lust uh, or sinful sexual activity. Disip discipleship to Jesus very much includes sexual integrity. So we're not arguing against that, certainly. Um, but we do want to say that lust or desires of the flesh here for John probably is far broader than that. Um, and we just want to be careful that we don't commit that error either of, of elevating sexual sin or focusing narrowly on it at the expense of the whole host of ways in which our flesh leads us astray. Uh, we don't want to fall into hypocrisy in that sense. So any desire, any desire in any area of life that comes from the part of someone disconnected from God and, and his vision of goodness is what John has in mind here. It's a big category. That's the desire of the flesh. Um, so with that as the big category, he, he gives two more specific subcategories. He says the desires of the eyes, which is probably best thought of as like greed and jealousy uh, brought about by what we see. Um, it's discontentment in light of seeing what others have. Um, and I, I liked this. Uh, the theologian Robert Law said it includes, quote, the love of beauty div divorced from the love of goodness. So it's elevating the lo love of beauty um, over against what other restraints goodness might put on us and, and, and the ways in which goodness might lead us to not envy and to not desire uh, and to not violate the beauty that we see. Um, so that's category one, the desire of the eyes, greed, jealousy. Category two says the pride of life. 
And this is probably referring to arrogance, conceit, uh, pretentiousness, the desire to impress others with what you have, with your possessions, with your power or your status, with the contents of your external life. Um, this is sort of like the toxic twin of the previous one. So uh, in that uh, it's, it's a misplaced desire for what others have. If, if the first one is a misplaced desire for what others have, this one is a, is a misplaced satisfaction in what you have that is <laughs> meant to drive up desire in other people and jealousy in them. So you see how they kind of go hand in hand. There's an adage you've probably heard that goes, uh, comparison is the thief of joy. And I think this verse would agree. Simple joy, contentment, security, these things come when we're able to quit the comparison game. Um, envy for what others have or pride over others for what you have are both hallmarks of a life apart from God. A trust, a deep trust that God will provide, that he gives as he sees fit, and that whatever our deficiencies are now, he will satisfy them in full one day. Um, that frees us up from the rat race of either lording our things over others or finding dissatisfaction when we compare ourselves to others. And that's good news. So that's all his first point. Um, there you go. Why should we not love the world? Well, because these things are not from God. They're contrary to him. Number two, he says the world and its things are passing away. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires. Um, and so what's interesting here is that this Greek verb for passing away uh, in the present tense, uh, it means that the, the world is passing away now. It's, it's in process of passing away presently. It's not something that's going to happen uh, exclusively in the future, but it's going on right now, present. Um, this, this needs clarification too, because so many of us have been shaped to read passages like this with sort of a, well, everything is going to burn up anyway, so let's do what we want until heaven uh, sort of mentality. But the world uh, that is passing away isn't existence in general. Um, it isn't human life and culture in general, it, and it isn't even the planet um, either. The, the biblical authors actually hold up a hope for a perfected resurrection life, both for people and for broader creation. So what, what we have to look forward to um, is a real, tangible life with God and with one another in a new heavens and a new earth that's going to have some degree of continuity with the lives we lead in the world we inhabit now. Um, but this, this glorious future will be marked by a new intimacy with God in his presence, with the final removal of all sin and, and, and the injustice and death that comes with sin, and the end of the world in the sense we've been describing, having a corrosive place in God's broader world. So I, I hope you can read this sentence. The world is passing away along with its desires, not as something to be anxious about, um, not as, but instead as something to long for in the deepest parts of your heart, not as the trading of life for like something more abstract and, and strange and uh, exclusively spiritual, but as the gaining of something more real in every sense.
And this leads us directly into the final reason why John commands us not to love the world here, which is uh, the end of verse 17. But whoever does the will of God abides or remains or lives forever. So in contrast to the world's passing away, um, the one who does God's will remains, is on a firm foundation. Um, The will of God, in context of what John has been laying out in his letter so far, it probably just means trusting Jesus as your advocate and as the atoning sacrifice for your sins, as he's talked about earlier. And the natural outflow of that trusting Jesus or that faith in Jesus, which is love for your brothers and sisters, like the pet theme of this book. So I'm assuming that's what John has in mind. The one who does God's will, trusting Christ and loving the brother, abides forever. So for whoever is in Christ, we get to remain. We will not pass away like the world. So to kind of wrap things up, we get this super easily reversed. So the temptation is to look at the world in all its confidence, in its persuasive cultural expressions, like coming to us almost omnipotently, constantly through our phones and our computers and our TVs and billboards and media of every kind. It's constantly coming at us and it's easy to imagine that it is more solid, that that these human creations, these human structures, these human cultures um, are actually more long-lasting, or that they're more reasonable, or that they're more hopeful, or that they're more true, or that they're more beautiful, or that they're more sincere, or more real than a life of discipleship to Jesus. Um, and, and both the world and Jesus have, have one thing, at least one thing, very much in common, which is that they both demand our full allegiance. In John 15, Jesus said, if the world hates you, that same word, cosmos, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus calls his people to understand that their first and primary and central identity it's as citizens of his kingdom. It's as his people. It's as those in him. Um, citizens of a kingdom opposed to all the false kingdoms of the world when push comes to shove. And the world will hate those who are loyal to King Jesus, just as it hated him. So we have to pick a side. John says, love of God or love of the world. And we're in an election year, so I'm going to have to say this a lot, I think. But do not mistake me for saying we have to pick a side along our political binary or, or with any other false dilemma that exists in the world. The world is very happy. It's very happy and very good. at It's, it's good at corrupting these things, and it's very happy to corrupt and subvert God's vision for human flourishing at every point along our humanly constructed spectrums. Um, So what I mean is you are going to find progressive, moderate, and conservative versions of idolatry, deep, ugly idolatry, and deep, ugly evil 
wherever you look for them. So no, no one of these groups has, has the market cornered on idolatry and the corruption of God's good vision for humanity. Um, the world is very e- eager to make distortions wherever it can, and it does. Um, and obedience to Jesus is never in this complex world going to be as simple as slotting in with one of the world's predetermined options for us. Not with any amount of comfort. <laughs> Also, don't mistake the heart behind this statement of, of, of needing to, to choose between love of God or love for the world. We are called to hate the evil systems of the world so that we can properly extend grace and love and peace and justice. The true versions of all those things only found in God toward the people of the world. We're not supposed to sit back in antagonism, but to press in in loving action and in the proclamation of the good news that God does love the world and that he did give his only begotten son for it, to save it. That's the heart. So to finish up, um, I want to leave you with a challenge for this week. And obviously we're very intentionally trying to keep these teachings short. We this all deserves more conversation and more nuance, but that's what your week is for. That's what your house church is for. That's what your community group is for. That's what your book club is for. That's what your relationships in the body of Christ are for. So I hope you'll explore this and dig in. But, but one challenge this week that I have for you uh, is that in light of the fact that I'm assuming for, for most of us, myself definitely included, um, we consume a lot more from the world's point of view than from Jesus's. And so this week, as you you hopefully take John's challenge to heart and and refuse to love the world, I I encourage you to take a fresh look at the King, at King Jesus. And specifically, I want to ask you to pick a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Uh, Mark's the shortest one, if you're interested in that. Um, And read it closely this week. And don't let yourself just sort of sail over the pages like I know that I do so often when I read the scriptures. But but study Jesus. Come to your reading this week with, with an eye to really take in his vision for life. Take in his spoken and modeled definition of love. Take in the values of his kingdom that, that he claims is soon to break into this world in full. And explore like Jesus as an object, a potential object of your love and your commitment and your obedience and your kingdom allegiance this week. And as you do that, I want you to honestly, honestly ask yourself if you believe that what he offers is good news. And that what he offers is worth being misunderstood and worth being hated for, is worth sacrificing power for, um, is worth giving anything up for. Um, and see if in doing that, if your love for him might just crowd out a little bit more this week, any love for the world that you that you harbor inside. I know this will be a a really good exercise for me. I'm going to do it. I encourage you to do it uh, if you have the time. And, uh, all of this in, in the heart that, that we might truly love God in the way he deserves and not love the world 
in the way that, frankly, it doesn't deserve, that we might love the world in the proper sense with the love of God inside of us. Amen? All right.